earlier leaving your problems outside the door, you know, it'd be so nice if we could just do that all the time, hey? If we could just leave them behind, just, if we just would never have problems again, how awesome would that be? But we know that that's not really a reality for any of us, but all of us experience difficulties, and uh, God wants to help us, he wants to help us so much to be able to carry all of our difficulties and put them in the right perspective, in the right place in our lives, so that we can be effective vessels for him to show a world that has very little hope and has very many difficulties how they can have a, a peace that we can't even explain because it's beyond comprehension. And um, but we are a blessed people because we have the word, we have the Lord, the spirit of God within us to give us that peace that passes understanding. Like a scene straight out of Gladiator, Polycarp was dragged into the Roman Colosseum. Discipled by the Apostle John himself, the aged bishop faithfully and selflessly led the church of Smyrna through the uh, persecution prophesied by his spiritual father. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, writes John, the Apostle John in Revelation 2.10. Be faithful even to the point of death. John had died a half a century before, but his voice still echoed in Polycarp's ears as the Colosseum chanted, Loose the lions! That's when Polycarp heard the voice that was audible above the crowd, Be strong, Polycarp. Be the man. Polycarp went on to be martyred that day with thousands of people chanting for his death. There's no way that we or Polycarp could ever go through something like this without knowing that God has everything under control. There's a lot of martyrs that have taken place over the centuries and people have done it with their heads held high. It's quite an amazing thing that it's even possible, but by the Spirit of God, that kind of thing is possible. The reason that I'm using this Illustration. One of the reasons I'm using this illustration, last Sunday, I heard Pastor Paul's sermon Sunday morning, and then usually I'll come to the Sunday morning and I'll come to uh, the evening service. I was sitting on the pew and Pastor Paul just finished up his word with a very sobering, uh, are you ready? And I don't know why that struck me because normally, you know, that's, yeah, I feel like I'm, t- for the most part, I'm ready. But for some reason that really gripped me and he, you know, I, he's standing there facing that way and I'm sitting there and he, are you ready? And it was like it was the spirit speaking to me. And, and it really, I, as I pondered and I thought about, are you ready? It took me back to an experience, believe it or not, that I had at the dentist. <laughs> I, uh, when I was a kid, I, the first time I went to the dentist, I had 21 cavities. And back then, it was like I was adding up the numbers, and it was around 45 years ago now. And back then, they don't, didn't have the technique for kids like they do now. Now they give them laughing gas, and they just float around while they're getting their teeth worked on. <laughs> I didn't have the luxury of that when I was growing up. And so as a kid, like, and I discovered here in my, I don't know, late 30s, 40s, when I was, as I'm going to the dentist, the dentist said that I don't take that freezing very good. And so they have to do it a certain way and they have to give you an extra amount. So as a child, 
21 cavities, first time going to the dentist. I spent several weeks, every week, at least once a week, going to the dentist. And it was literally like going to a torture chamber for me because it was like I had little or no freezing in my teeth. And, uh, and like he, there was like 21. I think that's my, I think my granddaughter said that's the only, that's only how many teeth you have in your head. <laughs> so as I, you know, so this created in me an incredible anxiety that followed me through until I was into my 40s, until I, it kind of dawned on me, hey, this doesn't hurt. You know, like when I went to the dentist, I'd be sitting there and I'd catch myself sitting there. I'm sure they could see it. You know, your legs are crossed. Your knuckles are white and you're sweating. <laughs> and, you know, so this anxiety followed me through. And then, but then I, all of a sudden I got to be relaxed with it because I realized, hey, this doesn't hurt anymore. It's not so bad anymore. It's not like it was when I was a kid. And so as this peace sort of developed in me, I sort of began to, you, you know, you sort of forget things. And so as time went on, I heard somebody say that you can have uh, your smaller fillings filled without freezing your teeth. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So then one time I got this brainy idea. I thought, I asked the dentist, I said, is it true that you can have your, he says, oh, this is just a small one. I said, oh, I said, is it true that you don't have to freeze the smaller cavities? He goes, well, yeah, he says, possibly. And I says, well, I said, why don't we try it? And he says, well, he says, you sure? And I said, Yeah. You know, obviously forgetting what I went through as a kid. <laughs> because he started to drill on my tooth. Like, it was quite amazing because it was very fast. He was, all of a sudden, he was drilling just like that. I wasn't sitting there waiting for the treating to take place. Well, he starts drilling, and then all of a sudden, inside of me starts to well up. And I'm just the smells, the sound of that drill, drilling, and the vibration in my head. My knuckles were getting whiter. My <laughs> blood pressure was rising, I'm sure. And... It was getting so intense, and then all of a sudden, he hit a nerve. And oh, it just about sent me through the roof. It was awful. And that's what made me realize that when I was a kid, my teeth weren't frozen when I was getting them done because that was exactly what it felt like. And then, uh, so he proceeded, he backed up, and he says, well, he says, I think we'll freeze this up a little. So he gives me the... Gives me the needles and then he leaves and I'm sitting in the chair and as I'm sitting in the chair and I'm looking at the ceiling and I'm thinking, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking and like I tell you, I was, you know, panting and like it was just really incredible how it hit me and it was like all the years of my childhood just come back and just zeroed in on that point and as I'm laying there and I'm looking at the ceiling, I'm thinking, wow, what would I do if I was being tortured for my faith? And I'm thinking, wow, and I was just thinking, God... Like, I felt like, I don't know if I could do that. And I laid there, and I looked at the ceiling, and I thought, Lord, you would have to give me an extra dose of the Holy Ghost, and you would have to really give me strength to ever be able to do that because I couldn't imagine doing it. And people through the centuries have suffered far more. I heard of a story. This is a a story of a guy that was going to be uh, martyred and his martyrer, his captors were taking him and he said, make it as painful as you can make it because I'm not worthy to suffer for, the, for my Lord. Like that's just incredible to me. But it's got to be a God thing. It has to be a God thing because I wouldn't say that. I'd say make it quick and make it easy, please. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the, the awesome thing is that it seems to be very obvious that God's grace is sufficient. The Apostle Paul had a, a thorn in his flesh. 
And something that annoyed him, something that bothered him, that he prayed and he asked God, you know, take this thing from me three times. And then God said to him, my faith is sufficient for you. And Paul, later on, he, there's somewhere in the, in the scriptures there, he talks about that God gave him the thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. He was, uh, he's quite a guy, the Apostle Paul. And so we all go through these difficult times. Some of us have things like a thorn in our flesh, something we'd love to get rid of that we'd never have to look at or feel or experience again in our lives, but it's sort of hanging on with us. But God's grace is sufficient. And, you know, as we learn to lean on God's grace and rely on God, you know, and realize that, hey, he's in control of what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through. He's in control, and we end up, we can have some peace about life. I know that uh, if I read my Bible correctly and I really look around, it's not, a, it's not an odd thing that we have problems in our lives. It's something common to all men. And it's like we all have something going on right now. But one great thing that I've discovered in 39 years walking with the Lord that no trial or tribulation or suffering that we do is, for the believer is in vain. Because God takes and he uses all things together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. And I sort of have come to the conclusion that God makes life for us as we're going through these difficult times and difficulties better because we've gone through this difficulty than we would have had it or that it would have gone if we hadn't gone through this difficulty. And it's kind of like a way of God just throwing it in the enemy's face saying, there's nothing you can do to my people. Because he's going to prosper us and make us successful in him. Whatever that looks like. And it looks like different for every single individual in this room. It's different. And that's like win-win for us. And uh, God is good. God is love. God just does wants to do nothing but to bless us. Um, sometimes we wonder about these blessings. Because sometimes they come in pretty difficult forms. But uh, we see in, the, in uh, the book of Acts in chapter 5, I was reading earlier about the miracles, that the signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. In chapter 5, verse 41, we see it says um, that the religious leaders, have, they called the apostles in and are threatening them and telling them to be quiet and stop preaching in Jesus' name. They were filled with jealousy. They were frustrated and they were very agitated because these people were flocking from other towns and flocking in, the, in Jerusalem to be a part of what was going on. The church is exploding. There was about 5,000 people approximately at this time in the scriptures. And uh, they've arrested the apostles. They've put them in jail. The angel come and let them out. And then they went to get them. And, you know, it's, it's quite a picture of them coming together in their little court and their talking together, okay, go get those guys and we'll deal with them. They go to get them and they aren't even there. And then they find out that they're back into the temple preaching where they arrested them from in the first place. You know, they were fighting against God and they will never win. We just have to, as God's people, just be willing vessels to be used by him however he sees fit to use us. Sometimes we feel like that's not so pretty and uh, it's not so glamorous. Sometimes it's very painful. But if we would just trust him, in the end, we're going to just be in awe of what God has done throughout eternity and throughout mankind. 
you know, he's got great things in store for us and we're going to be amazed. Amen. So these apostles, it says, it's, it says that, um, I guess I forgot to read that. The apostles, in being threatened, in difficult situations, they're called in and flogged. And then they ordered them to never speak in the name of Jesus again and they let them go. And so... The apostles didn't just leave licking their wounds and feeling bad and just like grumbling all the way back. The apostles, guys, they had no right to do that. Who do they think they are? You know, like we're the people of God. They can't do that to us. Instead, it says that the, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. We need to get to that place in our lives in our jobs, you know, we all need to get there. Yeah, we're not being persecuted yet. We're not experiencing this where they're coming and arresting us because of what we're doing as Christians. But there is so much light that needs to be shown out into our community. And we can only sh- let our light shine among men th- as we, you know, like the, the more we seek, Lord, seek the Lord, it's like we're plugging in like you've heard it said. But, you know, as we're spending time with him, they'll know it. And many will want what you have. Many will be agitated and and be irritated by it. But that's okay. We need to be that vessel that God has created each one of us to be. That he says he's created before we were even conceived. So I've taken a course in the book of Daniel. There's Bibles in front of you if you want to turn to one of those. Uh, Daniel chapter 1. And this, it's been a very good course. I've, I was very encouraged through this course. Uh, it was a course with Tremper Longman. I don't know how many of you know him. He's an uh, Old Testament scholar, and it's down in Ambrose. And so I get to uh, spend a week down there listening to him give lectures for like five days. And he walked us through the book of Jeremiah and then through the book of Daniel. And one thing that really encouraged me about this course, and it was probably it was one of the most encouraging courses that I took because... He brought out the fact through, uh, like there's, there are some artifacts and archaeological findings from the, from the Jewish-Israeli uh, historical archaeological findings and digs, but there are a lot of archaeological digs and findings that have come from the Babylonian history and the Assyrian history that confirm that who these kings were who they were and the people that served and all the things that Daniel talks about. And, and uh, Tremper said that the book of Daniel is a historical book. So that was really very encouraging to me. And then he brought out the different artifacts that they have found and, you know, pictures and stuff like that. And so it's very encouraging because anytime, like when you hear the world, the way the world is going now, and they're getting very aggressive and loud and with our technology, you're hearing a lot of talk, oh, the Bible's not even true and all this stuff. And, it, you know, like, of course, that's what they're going to say. But when you, if you want to research it, you can find it. There is so much evidence that the scriptures are historical documents in so many ways. And uh, we can stand on them. And, you know, not only do we have the written word, we have the spirit of Christ within us. And like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it talks about the spirit. The word is spiritually discerned. It's not, you know, you can't just read it and think you're going to understand it. The word is spiritually discerned. And, and we need to read it with our, an open mind and open heart. I have found that when I take time before I start reading the scriptures, if I take time to pray, it's amazing how much different the scriptures look, how much more open they seem to be to my 
mind, to my understanding. And uh, that's one thing that I want to encourage you to do before you pick up your Bible. Spend some time just praying and, and being in his presence. Because it's spiritually discerned, you'll see it spiritually. And that'll only bring life. So in chapter 1 of Daniel, we see that uh, what's, Daniel has written this book to the people of uh, Israel that are like there's captives. There were three sets of people. Jeremiah was prophesying that uh, Israel was going into captivity. Uh, Ezekiel was prophesying. All of these prophets, a lot of them were prophesying that uh, Israel was going into captivity. Israel killed all these prophets because they didn't want to listen to them. They were doing detestable, terrible things. Uh, because they did not want to obey the Lord. They were worshiping the gods of these other nations that they were connecting with. And these prophets were coming and they were telling them that, you know, what you're doing is wrong and it's going to end in destruction. You're not living according to the covenant that you made with that uh, Abraham, our forefather, made with God. And when, as a result, you're going to experience all the curses. And if you want to, you can just take a look at that. Maybe when you go home, the curses in chapter 28, verse uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, to Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's a good read and it's a real eye-opener. And then take a look at uh, Daniel chapter 9 because Daniel goes through and he's praying and he's talking about how that they neglected the, the covenant that God had, that they had agreed to. And as a result, they were experiencing all of these terrible things of the curses in the book of Deuteronomy. And I think that... Um, so, as what we've got here is... There were a group of uh, uh, people in Jerusalem before Jerusalem was taken captive and conquered by Babylonia, the Babylonian government. And they said to Jeremiah, they said, seek the Lord and ask the Lord what we should do and whatever you say, we'll do it. So Jeremiah says, okay, this is what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying that anybody that runs from the Babylonian army is going to be killed. Anybody that fights against the Babylonian army is going to be killed. But those that surrender to the Babylonian army and allow them to take you captive, those people will live. And they said, oh, forget that. We're not listening to that. So they packed up a bunch of them and they left for Egypt. They took off. They wanted to leave. And what we have here is we have the remnant of people that surrendered to the Babylonian government. And these people are the people that Daniel is speaking to and he wants to encourage. He wants to encourage them that even though you're living in a a nation that is hostile towards God and towards his people, you can not only will you can can you survive. Don't settle for just survival, but you can thrive because God is in control. And we and so he's that's a theme through every chapter, and it's a theme right through the book. The first six chapters are the stories that we're all familiar with. If we've gone to Sunday school, you know the stories that are in the first six of the Daniel and the Lions, Dan and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, uh, the writing handwriting on the wall, and uh, so we're going to look at just a couple of the stories, two or three of the stories in the first six chapters because the last six chapters are what Paul's been speaking about and it's related to the book of Revelation with the apocalyptic scriptures and I would not go there. (laughs) He can have that. I'll stick with the stories. (laughs) So in verse 1, we see the hand of God and Daniel making very clear right off the bat. In verse 2, we see that Okay, we'll go to verse 1. It says, In the year, third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. 
So we see right there that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Babylonia. So God is just showing that he's in control. An interesting thing about the artifacts, the articles that were stolen from the temple or taken from the temple, it says that they took some of them. And as you read on into the book, when the writing on the wall, the Belshazzar, who's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, takes, the, takes those goblets and he's worshiping the gods of silver and gold and he, uh, he tells them, go get those, those uh, articles from, that we stole from Jerusalem and bring them back, we want to drink out of them because he had a thousand people coming and they were all drinking wine and having a big party and so they brought the goblets and they started drinking out of them and uh, that's when the wall, the writing on the wall come and uh, that night and it, you know, he, when he saw it it's quite funny, it's how it says that his face went pale and then uh, when his interpreters couldn't interpret it his face went even more pale his knees knocked and his legs gave out from underneath him, he was so terrified by it and uh, so then they, he went and he got Daniel to come and interpret this writing on the wall. And uh, I might as well read it, eh? Seems I'm going there. In chapter 5, verse 26, Daniel's going to interpret the writing on the wall for him. And he says, uh, well, let's go back up to chapter, uh, verse 22 here. Because Belshazzar, being the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he's seen what his dad went through. He watched his dad rule a kingdom. And now he's ruling the kingdom here. And this is very good what uh, uh, Daniel says to him. He says, But you, his son, uh, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew this. Okay, we better back up a bit more here. So that happens when you go off script, hey? He saw what God did through Nebuchadnezzar, and because he didn't care and didn't pay any attention to it, God just said, you know, this is the result of it. He says, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor God uh, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore sent he sent the hand that wrote this inscription. And this inscription... Is, this is an inscription that was written. And he says, these are what the words mean. God has numbered your days, your reign, and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then as we read on in verse 30, it says, That very night Belshazzar, king of Babylonia, Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over his kingdom at the age of 62. So like he, you know, like he saw what God did through uh, with his dad and through Daniel and through the episode with the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he neglected and didn't care and figured he could do this kind of a thing. Well, God will not be mocked. And uh, it's a pretty powerful little story. And because I went off script, where did I go off script from? So then as we go on, we see that God is the one who brought Babylon to Jerusalem to subdue it. 
And so God is in control. And this is what Daniel's trying to get across. Verse, last part of verse 5, we see that these three, the king assigned uh, Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they were to be trained for three years after they were to enter the kingdom, king's service. Now, it's really interesting what they were being trained in. You look over in verse, or chapter 2. In verse 2, it says, The king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, and to tell them what he had dreamed. So in their three years of training, this is what they were learning. They were learning about literature and language, and they were learning all about the fortune-telling, the divination. That doesn't make it right. Not by any means saying that divination of any kind is okay. That is not okay, and it's wrong. But we see what Daniel and uh, these young friends of his chose the hill that they, cho- that they wanted to die on. You know, they weren't going to stand up for just anything, but they were going to stand up and stand for what needed to be stood for, what mattered. And, uh, so, and we see as you go through the, the text, you see that they do stand up. We see in verse um, 8 of chapter 1, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself because the king had wanted them to eat food off of his table. That's another thing, like in this culture... To be fat was, to be, was what was really attractive and what they really liked. And so this is what they wanted to do, to fatten these guys up. And one of the artifacts that Tremper said that they have found, you see those little guys, little fat guys, little pudgy guys with the great big ears, uh, artifacts. Those are the wise guys that uh, are uh, Bar- Babylonian artifacts. And uh, so... This is what they're trying to get to. And Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief official to, per, for permission not to defile himself in this way. And now God caused favor to the, for the, the, caused the official to have show favor and sympathy to Daniel. And, you know, it's Daniel showing again that God is in control. God is making a way. God has a plan in Daniel's life. And then... There was a concern that the king would have his head and the king would have his head because this king was either chopping your head off or putting a robe on your back. It seemed like that was the only two things he was about. The extreme of killing you or the extreme of giving you uh, gifts. And so Daniel says, test him. He tests him and then he says, at the end of the 10 days, he looked healthier. They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away the choice food and the wine and they drank and they gave him the vegetables instead. These four young men, uh, God gave knowledge and understanding in all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And so they went through their three years of training and learning and growing. And it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters in the whole kingdom. So you can see, like, Daniel is really working to get across that he, that God is in control of what's going on with these people, these captives in Babylonian. He's encouraging them, just hang in there, be strong. God's in control. Even though we're in a culture that is contrary and does not like us and does not like God, you know, we can not only survive, but we can thrive. And, uh, Thrive they did. Let's turn over to chapter 3. We're going to take a look at... Uh, this is going a lot faster than the first service did. <laughs> chapter 3, we see uh, the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar built. 90 feet high, tall and uh, 9 feet wide. And then he gets all of his officials together and says, Okay, everybody has to bow down to this statue that I built and worship it. If they don't, I'm going to throw them into the fiery furnace. 
And so, of course, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to do this. And uh, this infuriates the king, but he kind of likes these guys. When he promoted Daniel in the second chapter, Daniel asked him to promote Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. So he promoted them, and they were working in the government up in the higher positions. And uh, so he asked them to come and he asked them about it. Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 14. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? And he says, you know, okay, let's, you know, we can just let that go. If you just, we just will put the music on, make the noise, and you just bow down and worship. We'll forget this even ever happened. And, uh, but they said, their response here is, this is such a, a, a crazy response. They were obviously planning on dying this day because listen to their response when you think of who they're talking to. Nebuchadnezzar, who took life when he wanted to take life and he gave when he wanted to give. He was very radical in taking life. And he says, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 16 replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver, save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, that, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So like that's right there. It's sealing their fate. They're obviously going to go into the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar was so mad that in the New Living Translation, it says that he was so mad his face was contorted. So he was just like just furious, about as mad as he could get. So he heats up the furnace seven times what is normal. And he's such a hurry to do this, to get these guys in there and fire them in the furnace. And, and they, they throw them in, and the people that throw them in, they die as a result. And then he looks into the furnace, and he sees that this, there's not just three guys in there, there's four guys in there. And we see his radical response. It says in verse 24, it says, The king Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet, in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And uh, certainly, O king, look, I see four men walking around, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. And, uh, you know, so all of his reactions throughout Daniel are quite extreme. They're always extreme. And, uh, and so here we see in verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent the angel to rescue his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. And uh, verse 30 says, And when the king, uh, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And so it's just continual. Through the book of Daniel, it's continual challenge, trial by fire, literally, but a challenge the Daniel in the lion's den, he's, uh, they've, they did it. Darius the king, he had a relationship with Daniel. He liked Daniel. Daniel was about 80 years old at this time. And these guys, these scoundrels come along, astrologers and people like that, these magicians, and they made up a scheme and had the king sign an edict that anybody that worshipped any other god other than their god or the king, then throw him in the lion's den. And so this king just signs this. And then when Daniel hears about it, he goes to where he goes three times a day. He kneels down in prayer, and he asks the Lord to help him. He asks the Lord for mercy and to take care of him. And then uh, the king cannot reverse this. He tries to take all night to reverse this thing but, and find out a way to rescue his friend Daniel, but he can't do it. So then he ends up going into the lion's den. 
The king can't sleep, so he's up all night, it says, and he doesn't have any entertainment, any food or drink. And as soon as daybreak comes, he rushes to the den and he hollers out to Daniel, Daniel, is the God that you serve able to deliver you? And he says, oh, king, live forever. He says, you betcha. He says, because I've done nothing wrong. He says, God had favor. And then so he got him, lifted him out of there right away and he was so furious. He took the houses, he took the families, he took everything that these people that caused this little scheme, he, they, he took it all and he threw it in the lion's den. And it says those lions had those people snaffled up before they even hit the ground. You know, it just, Daniel's showing that God is in control. And we need to, as God's people, really understand. This is Old Testament times, but God is the same today as he was then. You know, sending Jesus Christ into the world to take care of the sin of the world, to take our place for, you know, all of the sins. He's paved a way for all of us. And He's asked us to surrender our lives to him. So he says that there's a cross for each one of us to carry. Anyone that would call himself a disciple of mine must deny himself daily or deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We all have a cross to bear. And we can't, you know, we need to come to the place where we're willing to bear this cross, whatever the cross is, because the cross is different for each one of us. And we have to be willing to carry this cross. And whatever the cross is, we don't know what the cross is. For some of us, this cross is made of styrofoam. And it's, you know, maybe light. And some of us, this cross is like made of petrified wood that weighs a ton. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to be able to carry the thing. But God's grace is sufficient. And whatever the difficulties are that we have to go through, because we all go through difficulties, it's not a matter of if we're going to go through the difficult times, the hard times. It's a matter of when. And when we go through these difficult times, God's grace is sufficient. And we want to go through these difficult times not just in survival mode, not just sort of just getting along. We want to work out. We want to be in shape, and we want to thrive as we go through these difficult times. That will speak uh, tons to one another in the church, encouraging us to be able to do that. And uh, let alone speak volumes to the world. So we all are going to experience difficult times. And I know uh, uh, as, we, uh, you know, as our kids get older, like when we're, our kids are growing up around us, they're, they're a part of us. They're, you know, they go where we go. They do what we say. They just think there's not in their mind to say no to it. Well, shouldn't say that. But they do go where we go and do what we do. We take holidays. We don't ask our kids, generally speaking, you know, hey, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Hawaii this way? Do you want to go to Florida, to Disneyland? Generally speaking, they go where we say, and they just they come along. They're just a part of us. They're just like our arms. And so as they grow up, they become independent, and they become people. And as they become real people, grown-ups, all of a sudden, they become involved and have real problems. And when we see our kids having real problems as they're growing up, that's very hard for a parent to see. And so as they see our kids having these real problems, we have to come to a place where we've done everything we can do to, you know, we can still influence our kids by displaying the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. But we have to let go and realize, hey, they're God's children. God can take care of them. God can draw them. One thing, one advantage I have, I can pray. And uh, they can't stop me. 
And whether they like it or not, whatever happens to them, if I'm praying, it's like God is in control. And, you know, whatever they're going through, they have the opportunity, as well as we all do, have the opportunity to thrive as they're going through these difficulties or just go in survival mode or crash and burn. It's really our choice. But I'm praying and I'm believing that, just like the scripture says, that as a king, as the water is, as the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whichever way he will. I pray that, you know, for my kids, for loved ones, for you people. I pray, Lord, turn our hearts towards you. Help us to hear what you're saying. Help us to walk, Lord God, in a way that's encouraging to others and just uh, healthy for me. Healthy for me so that it can be healthy for others. And so, like, it's a, it's a given that we're going to have problems. But we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. We can be like that because this is why God has put this book in our scriptures, in our Bibles. Because he wants us to understand that even though we live in a culture that may be hostile towards God and may be hostile towards us as his church, we can thrive. We don't have to just say, oh, and just try and survive. We can thrive. And he says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you're going to find me. And so what a promise. What happens if we find God? Like, wow, that'd be pretty incredible. You know, like, so as we have walking with him and we're getting glimpses and we're getting a feel here and there of God, you know, if we commit our lives to him and we seek him with all of our heart, just think of the walk we could have. Like, it says that the apostles did many signs and wonders, you know, we wonder why we don't see more signs and wonders in the church. I believe because the signs and wonders are not for the church. Yeah, they can encourage us and we can, you know, God wants to help us. He wants to heal us. He wants to teach us how to receive a healing. And then, but as we go out into our community and we're witnessing and we're sharing the faith about this full gospel, as it says, of Jesus Christ and what he's done and why he's come, whether they want to hear it or not, we need to be speaking this word out. And then be daring enough to pray for people in their sickness in this world, in our community. And uh, I believe that's when you're going to see the miracles because that's what was happening in the book of Acts here when it says that they were coming from the communities all over the place and they were hearing them, they were teaching these people and they were praying for them and all of them were healed, like powerful. So, like as I'm preparing this, I'm thinking, okay, there we are. But then I think, okay, I need to, say, how is it that we can prepare ourselves to be thrivers rather than just survivors? And, you know, I know I don't want to be just a survivor. I want to be a thriver. And uh, it does take uh, an intentional effort on my part to be a thriver. But the first thing I need to do is ask the Lord to give me the strength, to give me, uh, to draw me to himself so that I can Spend time with him. Because apart from God drawing, it says, no man comes to the Father unless he draws them. So draw me, Lord. Draw me to you. So then I've asked the Lord to draw me, and he says that he's going to answer these prayers that are prayed according to his will. It's his will that we ask him to draw us. So then tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up before anybody else gets up, and I'm going to spend time with the Lord, believing and doing my part of putting myself in a position where he can draw me. Daniel prayed three times a day, as he did every day, it says. And, uh, you know, we have a hard time praying once. <laughs> but, you know, we need to put ourselves in this position. Amen. An interesting thing is with uh, when 
Peter was going to, like he was on the rooftop praying and God showed him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And that meant going to the Gentiles and preaching the gospel to them. Cornelius has a, a vision and this angel tells Cornelius to send for Peter. So Peter comes and he preaches the gospel. They're all filled with the spirit and they're all saved. And, um, and then we see in, in when the apostle Paul is saved, Ananias is in a time of prayer and God speaks to Ananias and he says, the Apostle Paul's over on Straight Street over in this house. He's been blinded. He needs you to go and pray for him. Lay hands on him so he's healed. And so Ananias was in his time of prayer. Cornelius was in his time of prayer. Peter was in his time of prayer before lunch was being served. They were just doing their regular routine things and then just sometime out of the blue, God speaks to Ananias, God speaks to Peter, God speaks to Cornelius. You know, we need to have this discipline of prayer in our lives and allow the Spirit to work and to speak to us and uh, just be in that position so that he can draw us. Humble myself and pray is what I put down here. Humble myself is fasting. Fasting is supposed to be a regular, common thing amongst the believers. Jesus said, they challenged him and asked him, why don't your disciples pray? And he says, you know, this is not the time for them at this time, but they will fast. Or why don't they fast? And he says, they will fast. And, uh, you know, I humble my soul with fasting. Fasting is, is a great thing to do. And, you know, we need to learn how to fast. If you're not sure how to fast, you know, we can sure help you out in that way as a church here. I think most of us probably do because we do it three times a year here. But fasting and praying and then give ourselves, ask God to give us a desire. He'll answer that prayer. And um, we need to ask him to turn us towards him. He's going to answer that prayer and in being intentional, intentional, asking him for mercy because we all need mercy. The older I get, the more mercy I seem to need, the more mercy I see that my kids need, the more mercy I see that we need as a church. If we're going to even begin to do what God is calling us to do, really do it and do it effectively, we need his mercy because we can't do it without it. We just can't do it because, you know, our human nature, we just mess things up so well. And when his mercy is so good and he just wants to give it to us abundantly. So we need to, what I feel like, you know, like, and talking about myself here as well, rearranging our priorities and making God the priority in our lives. First thing I'm going to do is, and I, like I do do this, but uh, it's, and it's only because I can't sleep. I don't sleep. And so, you know, I get up and I spend time and I've, and I've discovered that if, I'm, if I can be up before anybody else is up, it's amazing you know, what happens. It's amazing the, how you're reading the word and you're spending time with the Lord. It's amazing what happens. Good things happen. And then when Karen rises up and, and uh, comes out, uh, we talk about, you know, sometimes we talk about what God has been speaking to me and stuff. And it's just very good. It's very healthy. It, as young couples, Karen and I determined that we were not going to let anything come between our relationship. I wasn't going to let work wasn't going to be more of a priority than my relationship. Making money wasn't going to be more of a priority than my relationship. Family wasn't going to be more of a, rela- a priority than in our relationship. Nothing was going to come between our relationship. And I think that we have really benefited from making that a priority from a very young age in our relationship together. And, you know... If we're able to do that with each other, I think how much more should we do that with the Lord? Make him the priority above that priority. 
Because if we have him, we've got everything. You know, and he's trying to speak to us all the time. He is speaking all the time. And we need to just humble ourselves and pray and be intentional to set time aside and uh, learn and grow so that when these difficult times come, which are going to come to us all, that we can go through them thriving, not just surviving. So, you know, there's different reasons why we feel like, oh, maybe we can't do some of this stuff. Well, pray about it. Pray about it. Change your priorities one step at a time, baby steps, but make them, and you'll find that God will move in and he will rearrange your life and he will bless you and you'll see things happen that you desire deep down in your heart. I believe everybody here desires to see God move in their lives and speak to them clearly and bless their kids and save their loved ones, all these things. He wants to do all of this. So this week, I want you to really pray about the priorities in your life and recognizing that whatever difficulties that you're going through, wherever you're at in life, that God is in control. If you're in a good place, be thankful, but don't let that cause you to slumber. If you're in a difficult place, turn to the Lord and ask him for the wisdom. And James, he says he gives it liberally. And so this week, make the priority getting up and seeking the Lord first before you do anything else. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for your Holy Spirit that lives within us, that has sealed our salvation. And we commit ourselves to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to seek you. Draw us to yourself, Lord God, in our prayer closets. As we read your word, open the eyes of our understanding. As our hearts are in your hand, Lord God, turn our hearts towards you. And help us to be, Lord, everything that you've called us to be. I pray that you would not allow us to be satisfied with the status quo, Lord, but you would help us to live experiencing you daily, Lord God, in such a powerful way that people see and they want to know what is it that you have. I pray, Lord, we will not be satisfied with the status quo. We will not want to be like everybody else in our community, but we would want to be who you've called us to be. And we would let our light shine among men that they might glorify our Father who is in heaven. So bless your people, Lord God. I pray that you would draw them in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.